regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where we hold long-form and in-depth conversations with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. Uh, my guest today is Ivan Komak, the CEO of Finn.com. Prior to joining Finn in 2021, he spent 10 years at Twilio, contributing to the incredible growth of the company from Series B through to IPO and beyond. Evan was born and raised in a small coastal town on New Zealand's North Island. Despite limited access to technology expertise, he developed an obsession not only with computers and software, but with the unique competitiveness and creativity of the software industry. NMR with Noah was the vision of Steve Jobs in the 1999 TV movie, Pirates of Silicon Valley. Evans was certain that the pirate life was for him. However, after studying software engineering and business in New Zealand, Evan headed for Silicon Valley and quickly found a home in Twilio, which would go on to become one of the fastest growing software companies in history. He considered his 10 year stint at Twilio as a PhD in SaaS, learning from the best software CEO in the world today. So Evan, it was my pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Fabulous. By way of introduction, as we kind of briefly mentioned, you were born and raised in a small coastal town in New Zealand, and then you later studied software engineering and business for your college. So can you share briefly a bit about your upbringing as well as your education experience? Yeah, sure. So yeah, born in New Zealand, as you mentioned, in, in the 80s. And it was interesting in the sense that I feel as though sometime around the year 2000, there was sort of this major world shrinking event where everybody all of a sudden gained access to the same information and same level of entertainment. And just via the internet, all of a sudden, uh, there was this level playing field that was uh, created uh, almost overnight, it felt like. But growing up before then, I mean, I was you know, 14, 15 at that time, uh, fairly limited access to a lot of types of information. So taught myself software development out of old, even at that time, old books from you know used clothing stores, like Goodwill kind of programming books on crappy old computers and whatever else. But I didn't really have any notion that that anything that I was doing was out of date because there was no way of knowing. So it was funny. I feel like it was like I was like the last generation of people to grow up without access to the open sort of unlimited amount of information on the internet, which I think nowadays just allows people to become great software developers, great engineers, great data people, uh, no matter where they are. But I uh, was still very fortunate and you know, studied software engineering and business in New Zealand. Had a great job during college. Yeah, I just set my sights on coming to Silicon Valley pretty early on. I didn't really know where that was, what that meant, what anyone was doing. All I knew is like, there's a whole bunch of like-minded people that sit around together and presumably build great products. And so that was something I had my heart set on for a while. And as soon as I graduated, basically made the pilgrimage. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience growing up there. And- you worked for a bit, right? As a software engineer when college. Can you share a bit about that experience? What were some of the valuable lessons you learned from having that practical industry experience while still in school? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, in New Zealand and in Wellington, where I was, there wasn't a huge amount of tech at the time. There was a few startups, but nothing really meaningful. 
and uh, it's gotten a lot better now. But there were a couple of kind of big international companies doing things in software. And so one of them was this company, NEC, which is a Japanese company. And I went to work there by virtue of the fact that a friend of mine's father was working there and he asked me to join. And I think uh, it was actually fairly instructive in like non-technical ways. So, you know, you're at school, you're learning all of this technical content, but I think it's actually really useful to understand how to communicate technically and also how to sort of navigate an organization and understand who is technical, who's going to appreciate technical discussion, who's non-technical, who needs things explained to them differently. And that sort of played into the job that I ended up having at, at Twilio in the, on the sales engineering side. But I do think there's a lot to be said about being able to navigate different levels of technicality, if you will, uh, and being able to do that in a way where you feel confident uh, at each level. So, so dealing with software engineers and knowing when to draw the line, know, knowing when to say, okay, I'm out. I don't, know, I don't know enough anymore to carry on this conversation. But also talking to managers and senior leaders and not maybe boring people or bogging them down in details that they don't need in order to make the decisions that they need to make. So that was a really good exercise for me, I think, in that regard. Didn't teach me a tremendous amount about like specific technical concepts, but did teach me a lot about how enterprises buy technology, how enterprises sell technology. Uh, we even worked you know, with public sector customers, and that's kind of the ultimate example of, of an enterprise-style software purchase and implementation. It's very regimented, lots of RFPs and all that kind of stuff. So just, I guess, really good exposure to the fact that the software industry isn't just software. It's also an industry. And actually understanding those two things can be really useful. Yeah, being comfortable navigating different level of technicality as well as getting exposure to enterprise sales intervention, which are two of the teams going to touch base a lot on throughout this conversation. I kind of briefly mentioned that in 2011, you moved to Silicon Valley and you joined this company, I think a startup called Twilio. At this time was like right after the Swiss beast financing, right? So what was the rationale behind the decision? Yeah, so I, you know, I came out to Silicon Valley and it was, I had this thought of, well, I can't start a company just yet. And I probably could have, but in hindsight, I didn't feel comfortable doing that just yet. I wanted to get a little bit of exposure to the United States and how people work and how people think and that kind of stuff. Also, I needed a visa. So there's no, <laughs> um, probably a lot of listeners have gone through that process. And there are people who figure out how to navigate that and just start a company and sponsor themselves, or I don't know exactly how they do it, but I wasn't willing to dive into that just yet. And so I you know, started talking to bunch of startup. I was pretty dead set on the fact that I was going to join a, a venture-funded startup. There wasn't a lot of interest on my side to go to a publicly traded company, for example. And um, just spoke to a handful of companies. And honestly, the decision-making at the end of the day came down to quality of the CEO. I think when you're joining a small enough company, you tend to get to meet the CEO. So quality of CEO and then quality of the team that, that they've hired. And I say quality, I mean, sort of there's a lot of intangibles there, but it's a lot about how well you get along with these people and how well you think you'll be able to sort of go in the trenches with them. And then also just the product. And so I spent a lot of time playing with Twilio's APIs and that was kind of what sold me. I had some exposure to telecommunications before that and I understood how basically just crappy it was. It was just this horrible industry that nobody really understood very well and was very slow moving and Playing with Twilio's APIs was like a sort of an aha moment of, oh, wow, this is something really interesting. It wasn't, I don't think, 100% clear at that point how exactly 
the technology industry would turn around and use this newfound sort of capability in terms of creating value. But the APIs themselves and just the way that the product was designed was so obviously magical that kind of what told me that I should really push hard to try and join this company. Yeah, thanks for sharing those decision-making framework. Quality of the CEO, quality of the team, as well as hands-on experience playing around with the product, right? We talk about some of those probably as, as we discuss more on Jatulo career, but um, I just kind of want to circle back into one of the early points that you mentioned. Like You said you're not interested in joining a publicly traded organization, and you're really kind of focused on venture back startup, right? Can you you know, reason that and for, like, say, new college grad who want to join the industry right now, what is like the pros and cons of going to startup route? Right. One of the big things. Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, it's a really good question. And there's definitely different types of startups. So there's, you know, a couple of people who are playing with an idea and maybe haven't done, had a successful startup before. And, you know, they want you to come on board and be a programmer and just sort of do everything. And I think that type of environment, I mean, it works like obviously, and sometimes when it works, it works extremely well. Like you could look at an example like Facebook and say, wow, yeah, you would not have regretted becoming the third or fourth employee at Facebook. But then, you know, it, it also doesn't work a lot of times. And I think in cases where it doesn't work, you may not learn as much. And so when I talk about startups, I tend to think that a, a really good environment for a new graduate to go into, for example, is somewhere where you're working with people who have done it before, whether they've been in big companies or whether they've been in other successful startups, where they can sort of help you to continue your education. They can teach you best practices and teach you sort of the things that are very difficult to learn from a book and very difficult to learn in college. Things that are very modern, for example, in college, you may not learn about the sort of technology trends of the last 12 to 18 months or 24 months, where someone in, in the real world may be able to teach you those things and teach you how to judge whether a technology is just hype and we should ignore it for now or whether it's actually something really interesting and we should invest in it. So I think there's like definite value in looking at a startup like that where it's like, I'm going to have a great manager. I'm going to have a set of people around me who know how to do what, what we need to do, even if they've never done exactly this before. I like that type of environment. Again, though, like if you meet you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg and you think, hey, look, this is an amazing idea. Like certainly if you're convicted about it, you know, jump on board. I think those ideas require a lot of conviction and a, and a lot of execution to make them work. Uh, but if you feel that energy, like, hey, you know, who knows, could be the next, you know, billionaire maker. Going to a big company, like a publicly traded company, I think also has benefits. But, and there's benefits, like, for example, you'll find structured programs for what they might call like EIP, early in, oh, sorry, EIC, early in career. And so you're going to go into a job where, they actually have charted out a course. This is how young graduates make their way through the organization and become senior engineers eventually. That's a nice thing. I do think though, you'll also find that your work is cut out for you a little more. So things will be put on a plate a little bit more for you, which means they're a little bit easier to solve. You'll spend less time spinning your wheels and trying to figure out what to do and more time just doing it. But it's, it's actually, I think, hard to quantify that there is sometimes value in figuring out what to do. And sometimes there's value in a little bit of mystery. And sometimes there's value in not having everything laid out perfectly on a platter for you. So it's really a spectrum. At one end, you have these very small startups that may be first-time entrepreneurs, and maybe there's no experienced engineering managers. And the vast majority of your job is figuring out what to do. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have very large enterprises that have 
super well-designed early in career programs. And at that end of the spectrum, your job is very much just doing work. The figuring out what to do is sort of already carved up by other people. So in some ways, I think it's a personal choice. I think that that sort of middle of the spectrum is a, is a really good place to look, sort of well-funded Series A, Series B, Series C companies. You get to experience a lot of the hyper growth and the upside that comes from growing a company and, and discovering a new opportunity and exploiting that opportunity in the market. But you also get some of the benefit of joining uh, an established team of experienced people, and they'll be able to coach you through various things. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for laying out the visual for the listeners, right? You know, joining a hyper-growth company like that, and you benefit both from the, the value of mystery and, and not well let us plan, as you mentioned, as, as, as well as collaborating with more experienced people who had done it before. So you were Twilio's first sales engineer, and then later you helped build out the first iteration of the Twilio's global pre-sales team. From the uh, experience of hiring for your team, what are some of the most important attributes of an exceptional sales engineer? Just sales engineering is a really interesting career. Uh, it's sometimes called like solution architecture or there's various names, solution consulting. Um, what it generally means is you work for a company that sells a relatively complicated technology product and probably a relatively flexible technology product. So if you think about a product like Amazon Web Services, it can be applied to solve many, many different problems. Even a, a product like Salesforce. So Salesforce does some things out of the box, but it's also very flexible. And so what tends to happen is in order to accelerate the uh, adoption cycle, in order to get customers buying the product and being successful with it more quickly, you'll have a team of uh, engineers who are really like, instead of building and shipping product all day, they're consulting with customers on how to take the product, customize it, integrate it, and deliver business value with it. So that's kind of the idea. And I think success in that role, honestly, a lot of times is people who are increasingly technical. So in the 80s and 90s, sales engineering, a lot of it was sort of being a product expert, understanding all the features, being able to rattle off, yes, it can do this, yes, it can do this, no, it can't do that. Today, I think it's a lot more complicated. There's always been exceptions to that. There's the genesis of sales engineering really is in the microprocessor or transistor or hardware industry. And that was very technical. But you know, people who can actually like think very creatively about how you might go and solve a business problem with a piece of technology. People who are really confident presenting, people who like to, or like get excited. I think getting excited is actually underrated in terms of uh, being able to get your customer excited and say like, oh, this is going to be amazing. We need to, you know, we need to go put energy into this thing. I think that's very good. And I think it's honestly like, there's more emphasis on the engineering, less on the sales. I think most good sales engineers move into say like product management or other areas, maybe marketing engineering or something like that. And less of them actually move into sales. There's exceptions to that, but to me, it's for people who love customers, love success and that sort of motion of making money and, and building momentum, but aren't necessarily in that sales mindset of pricing and relationship building and wanting to close deals. I see. Although there is a lot of relationship building, but. I could talk about that all day. Sorry. <laughs> I, no, not totally. if, if you're a great engineer, but you can't imagine yourself sitting in front of a computer all day, like basically closing out tickets, it's a really good career option to consider pursuit of. People who do very well in that career path also tends to make quite a lot of money. Uh, it can be a very, very fruitful way to drive your career if it's interesting to you. I see. Yeah. Let's say for a typical engineer, like from your experience, like how do they cultivate a sales mindset? Ooh, good question. 
I don't think it is a sales mindset, but I know what you're saying. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like a success mindset or an impact mindset sort of, you know, I think back even when I was in high school, I used to sort of help my parents, friends, like build websites for their small companies, right? This is before Squarespace and all these products existed. And it was always like, just really exciting to say like, oh, how's it working? And, you know, I'm talking to my mom's friend who runs a, you know, local construction company or something. He's like, oh, it's amazing. Like we got these leads, we got these customers, you know, people tell us all the time about how, you know, they found us via Google or whatever. And like, that was always super exciting to me. So I think if you're focused on those outcomes, those business outcomes, it's a good way to go. And honestly, at the junior level, you're not going to need any experience in order to get a job. If you have the technicality and you have that attitude, then I think it you sort of will be welcomed into that. I think if you're someone who's like gets a real kick out of like, uh, you know, algorithmic optimization, it's probably not the job. If you really love like perfecting, you know, test suites and making things perfect and real optimization of things, I guess, then it's like, no, 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 you're engineering in your DNA. You should go and think about being an engineer, software engineer, product engineer. Yep. Thanks for making that uh, distinction. We talked a bit about like that early phase of, of your time at Twitter, but then over the next decade, you assume a variety of you know responsibility, such as a product manager, data product engineering, and then the general manager for the IoT and wireless products. So, could you mind uh, unpacking the evolution of your career, Twilio? Yeah, sure. I mean, Twilio grew a lot. <laughs> it's it's actually. I mean, I don't think people understand how big that company is now. It's amazing, and I don't mean necessarily big in terms of employee count, but number of customers, amount of revenue, market capitalization. I mean, that company has just been phenomenal. And that's another reason I think that, you know, joining that sort of series B, series C stage company, or even series A can be very lucrative is that at least in my observation, companies will always prefer a known quantity over a sort of a new face. And There's exceptions to that where the known quantities, let's say the people who are already employed by the company are sort of obviously underqualified to do something. So if you're going to go out and hire your first CFO, you probably know very well that no one in your team right now is capable of doing that. But you know, there's a lot of other roles that don't work that way where it's like, okay, we need a product manager for this new product. It actually makes more sense when you do that equation a lot of the times to take someone who's never been a product manager before, but knows your company really well, knows your customers really well, and give them that job versus getting a product manager from outside who knows how to do product management, but doesn't know your company, doesn't know your customers, doesn't know your market. So I think it's a re- like, you know, joining that stage of company is, it can be really good from a growth perspective. And I just sort of played to that. It was always just looking for the next thing that I was interested in doing and, and sort of demonstrating the fact that it's a lower risk proposition to let me do it than it is to bring someone in. And then the extreme example of that is, you know, you sort of mentioned the IoT and wireless business unit at the at the end there. That's something where uh, I'd been at the company for a long time and was looking for a sort of a new challenge and, and essentially worked with another gentleman at the company to propose an entirely new business. And so we just built it from scratch. That was a little bit of an exception to that rule, but it kind of came from the experience of having done that a few times within the walls of the company, just putting my hand up and saying, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, it was great. I mean, ended up with a, in a general management role with fairly large engineering team across several continents with you know indirect influence over a dedicated sales team, dedicated marketing team. It was great. It was just like building a business. It was not entirely dissimilar from where I ended up now, which is as a CEO of a, a small company. There's a few things you don't get to do as a GM that you do get to do as a CEO, but 
a lot of it is is not too dissimilar. So during this transition from say engineering to PM and to GM, like what are some of the key like learning curves that you have to put a lot of effort in and learn to you know move up the ladder to say? <laughs> Good question. I mean, I think some of it comes naturally, but I do believe that as you become more senior in an organization in general, and there's no greater example of this than being a CEO, your mind needs to transition from feeling the need to sort of please the people around you and sort of please the your manager and sort of do what's asked of you to really just focusing on what does the market want and how do we get it done at any cost or not at any cost, but it, it becomes this sort of unbounded mission where it's just like, okay, the market needs this product to exist. We need to go get it done. And it's no longer about what other people are expecting of you. No one's expecting anything. And I think that's kind of what the nature of entrepreneurship is. No one is expecting anything of you. You're just doing it. And so now you need to create expectations on yourself. And that is, I think, in a lot of ways, one of the sort of core components of leadership in general. There's a lot of other components in terms of getting people to follow you and believe in you and help you. But there's certainly a big mindset. And I think, especially coming out of the education system, which is essentially designed in the opposite manner, it's the expectations are 100% clear. And I'm not just talking about you know higher education. I mean, elementary school, high school, all of these systems, you basically spend the first 20 or 22 years or whatever it is of your life with very clear-cut deliverables and you're just trying to attain them until you sort of get through to say like postgraduate work. But even then it's sort of, there's a structure there, let's say. And I think like, you know, going through those senior ranks in a company, there's a point at which it's, and this is true even before, you know, this is true, I think for product managers and certainly senior and principal product managers where there's no one who can tell you what the expectations are because there is no, that's the role. The role is like, okay, figure out what are we capable of and then figure out how do we go and do it. So yeah, I think that's like a really important mindset. I actually envy people who get into that mindset very young. It took me quite a while after being out of school to sort of like understand that that's an option basically. Yeah, I see. But your mind also need to go up to the higher level of abstraction, right? And then see things in a more like gray, not so black and white, but more like all the shades gray in between. Kind of go deeper into some of the specific things surrounding Twilio product. So you have shaped Twilio's unique middle-out sales strategy, which has a huge impact on the company's incredible growth from Series B through to IPO and beyond. So, so my question is twofold. First, can you explain this sales strategy concept for the uninitiated? And then second, how can a startup at a similar stage can generalize this playbook for their own growth journey? So I have to say, this is actually sort of a joke. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show Silicon Valley, but it's all based around this like middle out compression algorithm. And <laughs> when I was joining Twilio, there was this notion that historically enterprise sales had been like top down and then, and companies like Twilio and others were flipping on its, on its head and it was going to be bottoms up. And I guess like my interpretation is actually neither of those two things are really true. I just use the term middle out as a joke, but what it really is, is like, you need a product that I think to be competitive today or to be, maybe this isn't necessary, but if you were to look at a lot of very successful enterprise software companies today, they have a product that can be adopted bottoms up as in people can experiment with the product, figure out what it's all about, kind of fall in love with it, if you will. 
but I think very quickly and actually increasingly quickly, you need to have sales resources available and they need to come in and not be pushy and they're not trying to convince you of anything, but they are trying to help the individual who's looking at the product from a buyer perspective to navigate their own organization. Like you will almost always, whenever you're selling any enterprise product now, you will have very well defined security reviews and privacy reviews and all these things that have evolved over the last 10, 15 years due to the number of companies that are buying cloud products and SaaS software. And so I think like very quickly, you need to be able to help your customers with that stuff. And I think, yeah, just this notion that like people will start using your product and then, you know, within a few years kind of be gigantic accounts and you don't need to do anything and there's not much sales to do. Like that's not really true. I mean, there was a few examples that we had at Twilio that looked a little bit like that. And I think Amazon had quite a few examples early on, but as things have gotten more competitive, as uh, enterprise buyers have gotten a little more sophisticated around privacy and as different privacy regulations have come in around the world, I think it's very difficult to be entirely product oriented. There's a new term now, which is kind of product led, I think, which is what I'm describing, which is start with the product. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think that even when you start with the product, you need to be very quick in terms of coming in with a a go-to-market team that can diffuse the complications around buying a product and help the customer, the buyer, to actually um, get things pushed through their own team and also sort of look around and say, okay, well, are there other opportunities here? Are there ways to get more out of the product? Are there ways to, they call it like land and expand, but sometimes you want to even expand an opportunity before you land. Someone's playing with the product and you want to highlight to them that there's more that they could do with it. And that's where sales engineering comes in. And maybe you're showing them some demos and some vision and saying, hey, I think you could build this. So I, I do believe it's um, it's just a very, very hybrid approach now where the product, yes, needs to be like immediately adoptable and you need to be able to sort of capture immediate value from it. But very, very soon after, you want to have go-to-market teams that are actually useful to the customer. That would be probably the difference Versus the old way of top-down selling is like this go-to-market team needs to be actually useful, but they do need to act very quickly, I think, which is kind of the difference from what people were proposing as bottoms up originally, where these accounts were just going to magically evolve and grow. So yeah, took that combination of product-led and sales-led and then right. top-down, bottom-up, right? And so like, you know, for startup in kind of similar stage like this, how, how do you, you know, give advice for them in terms of the collaboration between the product function and then sort of the GTM function? How should these two teams work best together to fit into that hybrid model that we just briefly mentioned? Good question. I, I think this one is very tough and actually most companies will debate this endlessly and sort of evolve it endlessly. It's... I think a lot of questions around software engineering, ultimately the answer ends up being it depends. And I feel as though this is kind of the case as well. Uh, it depends on contract size, average contract value. So at Thin, the company that I'm now the CEO of, we have a fairly large average contract value. And so what that means is that we can make greater concessions on a per customer basis on the product side versus if you were to look at a, a company with a smaller average contract value than the product team is really acting more on data. Like they're, more, they're acting more on statistical inference that's coming from the sales team. So you might look at a, I'm trying to think, but like there's a lot of like um, analytics products, for example, uh, on the product side 
where they may have thousands and thousands and thousands of customers. And these customers might be a few hundred dollars a month each. In that case, you're, you still have a sales team because you want to get that deal done quickly. You want to work through the privacy reviews and, and work through the ESAs or master services agreements, whatever it is. But the relationship between sales and product, I think, is much more statistical. So uh, how many times did you see this issue? How many times did you see that issue? In a company with a larger average contract value, especially early on, the conversation is going to be much more high bandwidth, sort of high fidelity. So product managers joining more sales calls, trying to figure out how to help with individual deals. Like, what do we need to do to get this individual deal closed? That changes over time, again, where you know, the more holes that you plug in the product, the less holes there are to plug. But I would say that this depends. And there's also, there's like a huge amount of like literature and best practices on this topic. I don't want to try and, um, you know, summarize something so complex, but I guess my only message would be like, if this is something that your company is struggling with, like probably you shouldn't feel too bad about it. It seems like most people struggle with this a lot. I want to close out some of the question regarding Jocalia Twilio on the uh, IoT and wireless project that you were a part of. I watched this talk you gave at the Tech Open Air 2019, where you articulate on the untapped opportunity being enabled by new cellular IoT technologies. The talk also provides a couple of examples on how you know entrepreneurs and developers can take advantage a bit to drive better health outcomes, create smarter transportation, and improve the quality of cities' life around the world. Can you generalize briefly about some of the you know, IoT's product that you work on too low and what was the future look like yeah. for adoption of those things? I think IoT, I mean, I, I wish I could have stayed working in IoT in a lot of ways just because I think the industry itself is so exciting. Mm-hmm. I also think it's going to take a really long time. IoT is, I think, really a subset of data and big data and machine learning and sort of the idea that we can use software to drive bigger decisions in the future based on just massive amounts of data that we collect from various parts of life. And and in the case of IoT, from the real world, physical world, I do think it's going to take a long time. I think it's going to be one of those things, you could argue that the, the web was like this actually, where it took a lot longer than everyone expected, but it's actually unrecognizably massive. So I think the web is actually a, a bigger part of our life than a lot of people predicted in say the early 90s, but it took 20 years longer than everyone thought it would take to get there. And I think mobile was sort of similar as well. But I do think like this is one of those examples where IoT is going to take quite a while. And the reason for that is there's just a lot of infrastructure that's required. The networks need to get better, although I don't think that's the main thing. The developer experiences need to get way better. And that's sort of where we started investing a lot at Twilio towards the end of my tenure there. It's just very difficult to quickly build and test ideas in IoT. So so it's very hard to put together a device and make it secure and make it reliable and give it a good user experience and do that in a way where you can sort of have five ideas and four of them don't work maybe, which is sort of something that we're used to in software. You can try things out very quickly. And uh, in IoT, it's just, it's very expensive. You have to be pretty convicted of that you have the right idea before you start. And it's it just takes a long time. It takes a really long time to prototype, to build, to get something to market, deal with all kinds of things like customs and like all kinds of regulations around radios and radio certification and all this stuff that you just don't have to deal with when you build software. But I do think that there's no question that the physical world can operate 
mean, you look at the biggest problem that we have as a society, and it's really like inefficient use of physical resources. Like we're just horrible with energy. We're horrible with waste. We're horrible with manufacturing and hazardous materials. And like, we're, it's literally the biggest problem that we face as a species. And so I find it very difficult to believe that we don't gain a lot of benefit in the future from constantly bringing measurement from the real world into software, dealing with it using algorithms, uh, using machine learning, uh, using the power of software. It just seems like that will happen. There is no alternative to that. In terms of how it happens, I just believe that that's going to take a little longer than what a lot of people like to think, basically. Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing those uh, perspectives, right? Essentially, what you say is like an asset-heavy industry where a long sales cycle, a long time to market, and it requires a lot of stakeholders to get it working. It requires um, a lot of experts right now, which like arguably in the 80s or 90s, you know, shipping a piece of maybe actually the 70s would be a better analogy, like shipping a computer required a lot of experts. And now it's like you can ship equivalent functionality in an iPhone app in the app store, right? You don't really need to be an expert. You need to be a pretty good developer. That's about it. Uh, and I think that's a function of infrastructure. It's a function of companies like Apple building infrastructure in terms of phones and app stores and companies like, you know, all the cellular companies and all the Wi-Fi companies and all the, everyone else like takes years and years and years for all this infrastructure to come together so that mm-hmm. I can sit down in an afternoon and put an app in the app store basically. Yeah, we need an equivalent of Apple for IoT. Yeah, and it could take a long time. There's a lot of component pieces. Yeah, anyway, so after a decade at Twilo, you got hired as the CEO of Fin Analytics. Fin is a cloud-based comprehensive measurement platform for operations that help leaders drive efficiency and reduce operating expenditures through data-driven process improvements. What about the Fin's product and, and business that attracted you to join the organization? Yeah, so Fin's an amazing company. So super interesting founding story. I was founded by two very accomplished consumer technology people, uh, Sam Lesson, who was very early Facebook, uh, led product there for a long time, and Andrew Cortina, who started Venmo. So you had these two guys who I respected a lot, and they had started, essentially, they started out trying to build a consumer product. And they realized at a certain point on that journey that one of the tools that they had built to run the company was actually potentially a more interesting business. And that's the product that we now sell. So we essentially pivoted the company and raised some money at the end of last year. And we're really focused on the B2B, building a B2B company, building a great enterprise software company. And, you know, when I started talking to Sam about this role, it was like great product, amazing customers. Uh, you know, if you look on our website, you'll see at fin.com, you'll see logos from like, like just unicorn after unicorn, like amazing customers. And I think one thing that's kind of important, I don't know if I'll articulate this very well, but when you're building an enterprise software company or thinking about joining an enterprise software company even, it's this idea of vision versus execution, short-term execution. And they don't have to be at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they are. So sometimes you know, a company gets swept up in long-term vision and is unable to build a business in the short term in order to create a self-sustaining entity, basically. And sometimes people will build a business and can't really figure out how that becomes a vision, how that becomes a version of the future that doesn't exist yet. And oftentimes those companies, for example, will get acquired by another company that has a vision which is compatible with the business they've built. And one of the things I really liked about Finn was a vision, which was how do we apply data and all of the modern data collection and data analysis techniques that we have available to us to knowledge work, to what humans do all day. 
when they're using computers to do work essentially. And that was a really big vision to me. It's like, oh, wow, that could extend. And I could imagine a million different ways that that plays out in the future. But they also had a product and it was like, look for queue-based workers or people who are doing queue-based work like customer support and inside sales and financial back office company or teams. We can show you today exactly what your teams are spending their time on and where the inefficiencies are and where processes should be redefined and where training should be modified. And we do all that via basically a browser extension. So that enables us to see the human interactions that are occurring across different enterprise applications. And that to me was a very compatible, forward compatible version of the vision. So it's like, okay, great. We have a vision and we have a product and the product's making money. And so those things were important. And then also just meeting the team and sort of the sphere of people around the company, the investors, the board members, uh, everyone was very impressive and everyone was very aligned, very supportive. And so it just made sense to me. I also felt as though building a leadership team was a really exciting challenge and not one that I'd necessarily been able to take on before. So I was able to go out and find great leaders for marketing and product and sales and all these different functions. And that was a super interesting challenge for me. I'm actually really happy with how that panned out. Yeah, thanks for sharing those criteria that you used to make the decision to just transition, right? Company with strong vision, also fast execution, refractory product, as well as, you know, the challenge for your own personal quest to, you know, hiring, building out leadership teams. That's those are sort of the main factors that contribute to your decision. So let's uh, investigate, go down, talk more about the actual product. So Finn's proprietary software review some insights that lead to better tools, coaching processes, and high-performing, happier teams. Could you mind explaining the need for workflow automation, I guess in the term that being used on the website, and, and how some of the product features are built to address that? Yeah. For the first time, I think, in history, there's a very standardized way of interfacing with business applications, and that is uh, through the browser. So historically, you had... Java applications, you had native applications, you had you know Windows, WinForms applications, you had all these different ways of building enterprise software. That prevented us from creating a uniform way of understanding how the applications were being used together in order to solve business problems throughout the day. So they used to do these things called, well, and they still do, it's very popular, called time and motion studies, where you actually observe people doing a job. This started out in manufacturing, where you would observe someone on a manufacturing line and figure out the best way to get a task done. And that transitioned to software and people would do that in software as well. I think what we're doing is for the first time, essentially saying we can do that uh, in aggregate. So anything that your team is doing all day, we can understand. And again, that's, that's unlocked by the fact that all this stuff happens in the browser. So it all has a uniform language, let's say HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and a uniform sort of place where it gets done, which is in the browser and in the DOM. And so we're able to actually show teams, here's how your team is completing certain tasks. You know, issuing a refund, here's how it happens. It starts in Zendesk, it goes to this tool, it goes to that tool. You know, there's copying and pasting involved, blah, 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 blah. And finally, a form is submitted in NetSuite and the whole thing is done. And we can actually tell you in the, you know, 5% of cases where this takes too long, there's a tendency for the worker to have to use Google Translate or there's a worker, there's a tendency for the worker to get lost in the knowledge base or whatever it is. And so we can actually quantify that human work execution and turn it into data. And it's kind of an interesting thing because we have instrumented the hell out of everything else. 
We know exactly how the servers are performing, exactly how the software is performing, even the customer journey and what customers are doing is fairly well instrumented. And we invest tons of money on both sides of this equation. Where the rubber meets the road is someone on your team uh, dealing with some software in order to solve a problem. And very few companies actually know what happens at that point. And so Finn's solution essentially sits there, observes these interactions, and then we send that data to the cloud where we process it. And from there, we're able to reveal uh, insights and improvements, essentially. Things that would be very hard to detect at a micro level or at an individual level, we can reveal at a macro level, at the level of teams of hundreds or thousands of people even. Very, very scalable for large teams as well. So I realize you're probably about like the how instead of just the what. And so that provides like a right. comprehensive exposure onto how workers at these custom service and operation teams do their job on a day-to-day basis. With a recent shift to remote work, these kind of teams have faced various challenges on the day-to-day job. So can you share a bit about Finn's product capabilities to help you know, some of these teams thrive in a remote-first environment? Yeah, when we were building Finn, the consumer product, originally that was where this need came from. We had a lot of people who were working remotely and we didn't understand necessarily what they were doing all day sometimes and we didn't understand what was holding them back or who was better at what tasks or how to train people. And it's actually really hard when you can't just walk around and stand behind someone or ask them what they're working on or, or sort of observe groups in person. So the genesis of the product really came from solving that remote problem. And like one of the things, for example, that we can show you is this particular employee or maybe in general, an, an abstract trend is that your workers with slow Wi-Fi are uh, costing you this much. So your workers with slow Wi-Fi are getting X less amount of work done in some manner or capacity, or you know their computer's too slow, or they have too many tabs open, or whatever it is. But uh, Wi-Fi is like a really big one for remote workers, where it's like, hey, you should probably get this person new internet. Like it, it will pay for itself if you do that. And then, you know, there's there's a big philosophy we have, which is workers measured one way or another, whether you like it or not. And so, having it measured in an unbiased way is actually good for everyone. And a lot of our customers, I mean, before people were going home and working from home, they would just walk around and look at what people were doing in these kind of call center environments in particular. And um, not only can you not do that anymore, but it's actually better not to. It's actually better to, to have an unbiased view of uh, all of the work that's completed rather than a snapshot, which carries with it a lot of bias of, well, there's so many different types of bias that come into that. But you know, people work better when they know you're standing behind them or maybe you're you're judging people differently. Your managers are judging people differently based on who they like or don't like. So it's kind of funny because a lot of companies are adopting this because their workers are at home, but it's actually the better thing to do anyway. Yeah, for sure. And I came across like one of the slide on the website that's showing how Finns is the best work from a solution to tackle some of the you know, remote first challenges. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to unpack some of the parts that you just mentioned. So let's take up your product hat and put on your CEO hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any startup leader. And you mentioned earlier about, you get excited about like hiring, building on the leadership team, right? So what valuable lessons have you learned to attract the right leaders who are excited about Finn's mission? Uh, number one, I think it's more effective to find the people that you really want and spend your personal time getting them. So I haven't really used recruiters, for example, for our leadership team. I would rather find 10 people who I really like for a certain role and focus 
a ton of my personal energy on understanding them and their career and where they are now versus having a recruiter speak to a hundred people and hoping that one of them really uh, responds and having a deeper conversation with that person. So, and I think this is true for sales as well. Very early stage. You really want to, as a CEO, lean in and, and use your own personal energy and time to get very high value deals done. So that's one thing. The other thing, and this is fairly intangible, but it's very worth keeping in mind that hiring great people is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that you're out there talking to someone and you're trying to, at lack of a better term, convince them that this thing is going to be successful, that this is a great bet that they should make. In reality, doing so, successfully convincing them of that, and I don't like to use the word convince because I, I don't think that's totally accurate, but having them get on board with that vision actually increases the chance that that's true. And so the only rational way to behave in that scenario is to be 100% convicted. Because when you're 100% convicted that this thing's going to work and other great people then become convicted that it's going to work, you've increased the chance that you weren't wrong when you were talking to that person, basically. And so uh, it's a very difficult mindset, I think, to get into if you're not there already, but it's really important. If you, if you soften up and you settle for less, you've actually increased the chance that... I, I, there's this, this is old like trope, which is like, you know, people who believe... What is it? Like people who believe they can do it, do it. And then like people who believe they... Oh, people who believe they can do it are correct. And people who believe they can't do it are correct. It's kind of like that. It's just, you really need to go into this with the idea that, hey, we're going to be successful because then you're going to get the best people and then you're going to increase the chance that you're not bullshitting them, basically. Yeah, for sure. Having that mindset is so crucial. Besides finding you know, the right employers, uh, finding early adopters is also very challenging for any uh, enterprise product. And you kind of mentioned, you know, like Finn, make that pivot from consumer into SaaS product later on. What were some of the challenges that your team had to overcome to find these early you know, adopters, like how customers? Yeah, I think most enterprise companies, software companies, when you start out, don't have great marketing and don't have like a great way of articulating the problems that you're solving very briefly. So in very few words, it's super important to do. We didn't have that. We're working on it now. A lot of what we're using to inform that is coming from customers and customers that we've actually been successful with. And so in lieu of that, I think it's a lot about just putting yourself out on, on the line and just making personal con connections with people who you think might be great buyers, convincing them to spend some time with you on it and sort of listening a lot. There's this book actually that I, I was reading recently called Startup CXO. And uh, it talks about like, you know, what a startup CRO should be doing. And in particular, it says you kind of go from whiteboard selling which is you're in a room with a customer, you're both drawing on the whiteboard, there's tons of brainstorming going on. The next step is presentation selling, where you walk in with, with a PowerPoint and the idea is pretty baked, but you're still there. You're still there to discuss it and listen to them or whatever. And the final step is a PD, they call it PDF selling, basically. Here's a PDF, here's everything our product does. And at that point, you've got your messaging so tight that you know that it's correct and you know that that's going to generate buyers. And so I think it's, it's really important to understand that early stage where it's whiteboard selling. It's, can we spend some time together? Can we talk about your problems? And, you know, as the CEO, as the early leader, you're going to have to sort of like put yourself into that situation. You're, it's going to be hard to find a salesperson that can do that motion very well. Not impossible, but hard. 
So you're going to go out, you're going to find the people on LinkedIn, you're going to reach out to them with a highly personalized message that says, here's what I know about your business. Here's what I would assume are some of your challenges. Here's how I think we can solve them. Can we have a conversation about it? And be prepared to have that kind of whiteboard style discussion, basically. Yeah, I love your framing whiteboard style. I think your background shows definitely how a lot with this kind of muscle. Oh yeah, there is a whiteboard behind me. <laughs> um, and then uh, finally, to conclude sort of the main list of questions, you consider your tenure stint at Twilio as, as a PhD in SaaS learning from the best software CEO in the world today. What are some of the qualities of Twilio CEOs than Jeff Lawson that make him such a great leader and that you want to emulate for your own position yeah. at this point? Yeah. Understood. I, you know, Jeff, so Jeff Lawson, Twilio CEO, I mean, the guy is just relentlessly customer focused, relentlessly sort of product oriented in terms of understanding that you can get somewhere by selling, but at the end of the day, the product has to back it up and creating really great long-term loyalty with customers is a matter of having phenomenal product, but also just like intensely employee focused, like really focused on building a great place to work, understanding that that's also really critical for the long-term. And um, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think just those things, you're also just like a really great communicator, really inspiring, uh, amazing ability to speak at sort of 50,000 feet, but without losing the real world context that the team members need to be in touch with every day in order to do their jobs well. So, you know, he would speak very confidently about long-term vision, but it always felt as though it that related to the work that you were about to go and sit down at your desk and do. I also just think like, you know, day one mentality, which kind of comes from, from Amazon, which is, this is just day one. We're just getting started. We were phenomenal. I think at Twilio of celebrating our successes without ever getting into this mindset of we've made it like, oh, we, we can stop now. We're, we're done. It was always, it was always day one. And, you know, some of these things sound like platitudes. I, I honestly think the difference between like a good CEO and a great CEO, if you will, is how do you take things that are sort of necessarily cliche and necessarily kind of platitude and actually make them feel real, like actually make them feel like something that you can use to get your job done. How do you, how do you define values in such a way where people actually use those values to make everyday decisions? And I think, you know, everyone tries, but a lot of companies end up with values that just sound like platitudes, basically just like nice, nice, wishful thinking but very hard to actually make concrete, very hard to use to make day-to-day decisions. And, you know, I, I applaud why, and I'm, I'm just sort of grateful of having been in an environment where collectively we figured out how to define a, a set of values and they called it Twilio magic, but that actually enabled us to, to succeed day-to-day and, and feel like we're part of something. Thanks for making that distinction. Good CEO, great CEO, and I realize your point about that physical manifestation of like those platitudes in your own words. Uh, Evan, this was our conversation and want to move in the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then give you know very quick answers for the listeners. Uh, number one, name three people in the broader tech uh, communities whose work you admire. I have a lot of cliche answers to this. Like I, you know, I look at people like Elon Musk the same way everyone else does and just say, like, how the hell did that guy do any of that stuff? But you know, closer to home, I think a lot of the folks that are I've hired onto my team, I admire just their hard work and their their willingness to join something early and Uh, their willingness to step up and lead a company that has never been led before. There's some other people that like, I think get a bad name that I actually really like. I think Jack Dorsey is a really interesting guy. He went from being a sort of a software engineer, relatively unassuming to then all of a sudden building Twitter. And then now 
somehow is the CEO of two companies and Square to me like constantly surprises me in terms of its execution and seems like it's doing something right. I don't know anything about the guy. I don't know anything about his personal life or anything like that, but just seems very level-headed. I mean, there's also, well, maybe that's the wrong word, but consistent or something. I don't know. There's Twitter, like there's so many obvious ways to go and try and make Twitter a million things that it wasn't. And I'm sure all the shareholders wanted them to try a lot of those things and they didn't. And now Twitter is like this amazing thing that's never existed before. It's this global news network of some kind. And then meanwhile, building Square, which is like just an amazing company as well. So I don't know anything about the guy, but I have to think he's doing something pretty awesome. I think like, you know, there's a couple other folks that I think are just amazing, which are these really product oriented, amazing engineers. So the guy who started Quip and now is the CEO of Salesforce, Britt Taylor. Like just a amazing product engineer, but also like is so good that he's like inventing, you know, things that go on to power huge companies. And like I, I always, I always envy that. I think that is the um, Paul Boucher is I, I don't know how to say his name, but the guy who created Gmail and FriendFeed and went on to be CTO of Facebook, I think. But like those that type of profile of just like I'm an awesome engineer and I actually leverage that to like build amazing stuff inside small companies, inside big companies. And like that to me is the essence of Silicon Valley. So I think that type of profile as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing this persona. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate leadership mindset. I, I'll just say the one I said before, that Startup CXO. The only reason I say that is because I read it like last week and I, <laughs> I tend to read a lot and then I sort of forget things until I'm reminded of them. But that one's top of mind for me. Really great sort of just overview of how to think about building a multifunctional leadership team at a startup. I don't know if it's leadership mindset so much. It might even be the opposite. It might even be sort of leadership execution, but still a great read and uh, something I would, I would definitely recommend for actually any employee, honestly, that's going into a startup. I see. Startup CEO. Um, CXO. 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 Yeah. Startup CEO is a different book. And I'm actually reading that right now, but uh, CXO. <laughs> that's good. Startup CXO. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage sales engineer and solution architect on Twitter. What could you tweet about? <laughs> so early stage sales engineers and solution architects, I think the, my message would just be like, don't be afraid to channel your inner Steve Jobs. Just, just go crazy. Like your job is super important. Don't be shy. It's fine to be a show off. It's like the one job where it's like actually really great to be a show off. As long as you're not arrogant, as long as you're still listening and listening to customers, like just by all means, show off. I think that's, that's a great way to end our conversation, Evan. And uh, I really enjoy learning about your personal story growing up in New Zealand, moving to Silicon Valley, joining Twilio, going through the hyper growth phase from Series B to the IPO, your current job as a CEO of Finalytics discussing the product, fighting customer, fighting, hiring the right leadership team, as well as different interesting threads regarding go-to-market strategy, product let grow, and, and mix mastering between sales let grow, as well as general leadership conversation that we mentioned. And be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners have a chance to take a look and follow you and Finn, some of the work that your team's doing in the future. And yeah, have a rich chat and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Same to you, mate. Nice to meet you. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website 
at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.